Hey everyone, welcome back to a special bonus episode of On the Tape with Dan Nathan and myself, Guy Adami. Danny Moses will be back on a regular Friday release. Today we have a special guest. Bono and Eisen is a regular contributor on CNBC's Fast Money. Bono and played for the men's soccer team at Stanford and after graduating went to work at J.P. Morgan as an options specialist and later worked at Citadel. He now manages the equity derivative business at XP Investments and serves as the chairman of the investment committee and is a member of the finance committee on the board of the Thatcher School. So obviously that was my scripted introduction of Bono and Ice. And now let me give you my personal introduction of Bono and Ice. And as Dan Nathan says all the time, much to my dismay, I've been doing Fast Money for the last 37 years and I've seen many people come and go through no fault of their own, but every once in a while somebody comes on that gets it. They have the personality, the intellect, the instinct, and just sort of the vibe that works for the show. And I will tell you without equivocation that Bono and Eisen is one of those people. Bono and welcome to On the Tape. I appreciate it, my man. I uh, would like to say I wrote that introduction myself, but I don't even have the vocabulary to uh, introduce myself with such superlatives. So I, I definitely appreciate the warm welcome. Well deserved. Yeah. So Bono and you and I met 10 years ago. We became fast friends. We worked on a trading desk together and it's really been uh, amazing the last, I think it's about a year and a half since you kind of joined the options action and the fast money team. So it's been a ton of fun to work with you again. And Guy Adami, I have to tell you this is that, you know, this guy 10 years ago, a decade ago, okay, he used to show up on the trading desk bright and early. I mean, he, he was an early riser, but this guy would come in from kickboxing lessons or class or whatever. He was just beating somebody's brains in at like six in the morning. And he'd roll up on the trading floor and he'd lay out all his gear, okay, on like empty chairs on the trading floor to kind of air out throughout the day. You know, what what kind of what kind of setup do you think that was, Bonwin? Do you still do that on your trading desk? I do not. I do not. We have a shower downstairs, <laughs> so I'm able to leave that stuff in the locker room. But hey, I just wanted to kind of share the freshness let you guys get in the ring and get ready to knock it out throughout the trading day. Yeah, you know, Guy, I think that was an intimidation factor. It was basically uh-huh. like if we have any trade errors or anything like that, you know, we're going to meet in the ring to kind of set this thing up. So what has it been like, Bonwin, joining the cast of, of a group like Fast Money? It's one thing to come off the trading desk at the end of the day and another thing to go and actually have to talk about it in a way that, you know, people who are not – don't have the background that you have and explain it in a way that, uh, you know, be helpful to people. What has that been like for you? Sure. I'm glad to dive into that. So let me start by saying, and I apologize, it's going to be somewhat of a long-winded answer, but I think it's appropriate. I think it's one thing to be given an opportunity, right? I think it's another to be put in the game and then placed in a situation that you have a high probability of success. And I think CNBC has really done that, whether it was kind of like partying and parceling things out and like having me take bite-sized pieces with options actions or just having like a few guest appearances. I think it was kind of done in a way that allowed me to kind of take bite-sized pieces and be groomed. And again, I, and I think that that kind of speaks to the professionalism of the network and the camaraderie of the cast, right? Just kind of like introducing me in a way that allowed me to kind of step in and succeed seamlessly. But I think that was by design more so than my ability, to be quite frank with you. Well, I know about that. I mean, your ability speaks for itself. And you have to understand, because I know you do this, if you get a nickname on this show, man, you have made it. And I gave you the B-Ice Breaker. Does anybody call you that? Is that caught on in the Bono and Iceland world? There's a few people. They like to rib me about it. But it's fine. That can just be between me and you, baby. We're good. 
<laughs> well, I think it's a great nickname. And by the way, in that, I think it's Cassius Cuvee rap song, one of the lyrics was, you know, guy making fun of Bonwin or something like that. And you know, I'm not making fun of you. I, I absolutely do adore you. And we've gotten an ability to sit down and chat before the show and after the show from time to time. We obviously haven't seen each other in the better part of a year. Uh, but as I mentioned, you're a welcome voice to Fast Money. What do you think you bring to the show? I know what you bring to the show, but what do you feel like? What do you feel your expertise, role, your groove is for Fast Money and doing the show? Oh, well, I mean, the cool thing about Fast Money is that there's so many lanes, right? And it kind of allows you to kind of spread your tentacles into a lot of different topics of discussion. So first and foremost, I think it allows me to kind of exhibit my well-rounded approach to investing. I consider myself more of a macro guy. I mean, I'm, I'm classically trained in options, but in terms of kind of putting together my theses, it's more macro related. And I think the, the appeal of that show is that it allows you to kind of put the puzzle together and then express that view in a way that is easily digestible. The last thing I'll say is that I really do believe I offer a diversity of thought. And I don't really want to use that word loosely. I mean, in terms of background, generation, upbringing, views on the market. You know, keep in mind, like a lot of times I notice, you know, Dan, you and Guy, you reference things that have happened 20 years ago as if they're your own personal experience. For me, I have those references, but it comes through the form of study or something that I've seen in a book or something that I've kind of read about and, and use it as part of like my data analysis. So what I think I'm able to do is kind of take a unbiased quantitative approach to things that are like gut instinct for you and kind of distill that down in a way that may may vibe with a with a younger crowd that doesn't have that same uh, mental Rolodex that the two of you have. Well, that's really interesting. Let's let's get into that. You know, I started in the late 90s in the lead up to the dot-com implosion, and it was a long bear market. And that was really that, that boom and that bust really informed the next 20 years of my career or the last 20 years of my career. You started in the business, I want to say, in the mid to late 2000s in the lead up to the financial crisis. And it's really interesting when we think about a lot of what we've heard about this wall Wall Street bets crowd that they're pissed off that you know their parents really had it tough during the financial crisis and this is a young millennial crowd and that's really informed the way that they think about big financial institutions or their financial livelihoods going forward how did Wall Street or your entrance to Wall Street in the mid to late 2000s and living through the financial crisis earlier in your career how has that informed let's say the last 10 years of your career that's a great question so no and I, and I like how you kind of give the example of the dot-com bubble so for me, I started, I interned in 2004, took a permanent role in 2005. And so leading up to the financial crisis, I was trading home builders, and then I traded financials through that crisis and out of that crisis. Then I traded energy, right? So historical context for a lot of guys that are in my seat that were much older than me is see option, sell option, right? It's oftentimes we liken optionality to insurance, and it's like, listen, over the course of enough observations, you really want to be a writer of insurance premiums. From my standpoint, though, I've seen that the shocks to the market can be so volatile and so drastic in terms of the occurrence and the amplitude of those moves that there hasn't been enough time for you to actually create that buffer, that selling option premium to get. Put another way, I've really only traded high gamma type of books. So when I come into an option 
or I'm coming into a position, I'm looking at what can go wrong. What are the outliers that I need to account for? Where I think conventional wisdom has been around mean reversion and expecting Six Sigma events to be Six Sigma. In my experience, those Six Sigma events have been more like normal standard deviations. That's a fascinating point, Bono, and I'm glad you brought that up because statistically, and you and Dan know this much better than I do, but I think statistically, 80 to 85% of all options written expire worthless or something like that. So people, it stands to reason, people are doing the same things you just talked about, writing options, collecting the premium, and worrying about what can go wrong if it does go wrong. But what's happening, in my opinion, the 15% of the time now has been extraordinary. And where do you think we are on that curve. You're still talking about a VIX, despite the fact that the market's at all-time highs. The VIX here at 22 is still significantly higher than we were this time last year at all-time highs when the VIX was 14. What's your sort of take on all this? That the market understands that we are continuing to rally based on non-fundamental aspects, right? Liquidity is the driver. FOMO is a real driver retail presence, whether it be actual retail investing or the perception around the retail presence that is really kind of driving this market. And that while people understand that, listen, you have to be a player in order to to achieve returns, to continue to kind of participate in this market without having some protection in place is somewhat foolhardy. And the VIX, I think, is telling you, yes, we're going to continue to grind higher, but our comfort around said moves is a decreasing phenomenon. So, Bono, and you know, it's, you're talking language that you know I, I speak. Um, I, I grew up or, or spent some time on, on a trading desk like you did with some really smart people as it relates to kind of derivative theory, that sort of thing. What has it been like for you? And this was really interesting for me. I started um, on Options Action on CNBC in 2009. And, you know, I'd spent the first part of my career just talking to pros, right? Whether it be people on the buy side or the sell side and very schooled in all that Wall Street lingo, right? And and, and this was what we did. And so my, my question for you is like, you know, when I got on CNBC, you know, you're not talking to those people anymore. You're really talking to the, the, the public about these sorts of things. What has it meant to you to actually have a message for a retail investor? And you just made a great point before that you think you bring something a little different to it because of you know your background and being younger than a lot of the people that are on a financial news network like CNBC. What has it meant? Do you think it's a great responsibility speaking to a retail audience? A thousand percent, right? I, I, I think I take that responsibility very seriously. And I try to we hear the term dumb it down a lot, and I, I don't care to dumb it down, right? I, I think that presupposes that my audience doesn't understand. What I think we all have responsibility to do is not hide behind jargon and lingo. And if you can take complicated concepts and distill them down and communicate them in lay terms in a way that people can grasp, I think you've done your job. If you're going to get up there and you're going to flap off at the mouth and hide behind gamma and ball and square and only speak that way in in a highly jargonized for lack of a better term way to hide behind and refuse to kind of speak in terms that you are forced to communicate the concept that is in your head i think that's a responsibility that we all have and, and one that i take very seriously you are speaking my language it's like you read my mind with that answer because i say all the time the smartest people are the ones that make this seem easy and accessible and are not talking in the jargon and you're right when we first started doing fast money literally 
in 2006, we went to the network and said, look, we're not looking to do a show that dumbs things down. We want our audience to sort of get up the curve. And I think to a certain extent, we've been successful and we lose all the inside baseball stuff. So I'm so happy that you brought that up. And that's one of the things that I talked about at the top. You bring that instinct of understanding what the audience is looking for to the show. And, and, and I find it refreshing and remarkable. And oh, by the way, you're only going to get better. But to your point, and I think Dan talked about this, I think people want to get to know you. So we know you went to Stanford. You're an athlete. What was your path like? I know when I was growing up, I either wanted to play tight end for the Giants or shortstop for the Yankees. Neither one of that was going to happen. And I found myself on Wall Street. What was your path like? Oh, man, how far back do you want me to go? Go, man, go. We can pick it up from Stanford. I mean, if we want to go way back, I'm from uh, I'm a California kid. I'm from Stockton, California, which is a pretty storied city. It's been through a lot. I think it, it contributes to you know who I am and the appreciation for the opportunities that I've been afforded. I ended up at Stanford, played soccer there for two years, tore my hamstring up, met some what were big brothers at the time. And a skill set that I think I've picked up from my background is like, I remember my parents telling me, you've got one mouth, two eyes, and two ears. So you should like watch and listen four times as much as you talk. So I looked around and said, listen, I, I'm at this institution that's got all these brilliant minds. Let me see what the older people are doing, right? And not to date you two, but I think that's kind of contributed to our relationship with both you and Dan, right? Like, I, I think what's kind of wrong with this generation, I'm not going to bash the millennials. I think there's like a, a, a lot that's great there. It's like, just because it's not on social media and marketed doesn't mean there are not tons of information that you can get if you'll just shut up and listen for a little while, right? People want to tell their story. People want to teach you, but people want to feel like they're not wasting their time doing it. So anyways, long-winded, uh, I asked around a lot of people that I kind of saw at Stanford and I you know knew they were from challenge backgrounds, but they were kind of getting good jobs. And I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't know anything about Wall Street or finance or any of that, right? I was an undergrad kid. I knew that um, there were certain things that I wanted to accomplish for my family. And I knew that financial literacy was going to be critical because what I saw growing up were people that didn't understand it, had a lot of like financial woes and problems, worked multiple jobs. I mean, a, a working class type of, you know, neighborhood. I'm not going to get up here and give you some sob story, but like it was very apparent to me early on that the lack of this financial knowledge would be to my and my family's detriment. Let's take a step back for a sec, because you just said, you know, that this was an opportunity for your family, you know, and, and does that mean getting to a school like Stanford and understanding now that this is the stepping stone to a big career, right? A big education and a big career. Is that what you kind of mean by that? Quite frankly, I wanted to, we didn't live in the best neighborhood. I wanted to move my mother out of the home that she was in. My brother wanted to go to law school. And again, I, I really don't want to make this about a sob story because we all have our challenges. But like, I lost my mom at a really young age, wanted to make sure my brother got through law school. And I didn't want to fall victim to having to depend on someone. And what I saw was in my neighborhood and a lot of other neighborhoods, Guy even mentioned it, the only way out, quote unquote, is playing professional sports. And I knew, luckily, I got injured early on. I knew that there had to be another way. And quite frankly, I can kind of go on and on about this, but frankly, I knew that financial education, literacy, understanding of the market, understanding of investments, how money works, I knew that that was going to be a 
a core educational component in re regardless of what business type of venture I wanted to get into. I knew I had to have that understanding to even play the game. So it's interesting, though, when you were there in Stanford in the early 2000s, you know, some of the most successful companies, obviously, in technology have come out from some some of those recent grads or people there at the time, you know, and you're talking about really financial literacy and a path towards financial independence. Was there a push and pull for you to kind of go more towards a tech route than, let's say, Wall Street financial services route? Or did you always know that you were going to go into financial services? Uh, I took my first uh, computer science class, and I knew that, that it wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> there's no point in trying to roll the ball uphill. It just it wasn't a skill set that I had. And keep in mind, at an institution like Stanford, man, these kids that are taking CS 101 have years of experience. And not to say that that wasn't a worthwhile challenge. It just didn't resonate for me. And a for a lot of us, I think the financial aspect was a tangible thing that I could kind of shoot to. There's ones and zeros and what that programming language might mean in uh, a second or third order of operations. I wasn't able to put the story together. I very much could put the story together in terms of investment and financial acumen. So I mentioned I, I grew up in a town called Croton on the Hudson. I mentioned this for a very specific reason. One of my best friends to this day, somebody I've known since I'm five or six years old, his name is Fred Opie. And I, and I mentioned Fred because Fred came from one of the few African-American families in our town. But Fred wasn't my black friend growing up. He was my friend, and, and I mean that sincerely. But, you know, I've learned over the years that by taking that for granted, I probably looked past some of the difficulties, some of the hurdles that he inherently had to face that I had no idea about. And to be honest with you, Bono, and that breaks my heart. It really upsets me. And Fred and I have had long conversations about this. So talk to us about your path to Wall Street, because clearly everybody's path is different. It takes on all different shapes and sizes. And I'm just curious, have there been any hurdles? Were there any situations that you found like you had to maybe do better than the next guy? Those types of things that I think the audience would be interested in hearing. The short answer is yes. A ton of challenges, right? As we mentioned, this material or curriculum, if you will, isn't taught in school, even at an institution like Stanford, right? It's taught in the boardroom. It's taught, and I, you know, I would see, you know, you see people bring their kids on the trade floor all the time. Those conversations are had over dinner or at the park. It's passed down in a much more colloquial type of way than any type of institution or formal type of training. So just not having exposure to it is a challenge in and of itself. And then, frankly, for every you and Dan there is, there's 50 guys that aren't open to even having a conversation, right? And I think I would be remiss not to mention that in any type of interpersonal interaction, cultural fit and social fit and common background, all of that stuff is going to weigh in, you know, like just, just how you're able to kind of vibe and resonate with someone. And a lot of this stuff you need a mentor for. Someone has got to teach you the ins and outs of training. And I was just fortunate enough to have some really good mentors. And I, and I know I'm kind of going off here because I'm, I'm hesitant to like bang the table and say, oh my God, the situation's impossible. And, and I'm really happy that you have me on the show because the situation isn't impossible and people do need to take responsibility for their own situations. With that said, the responsibility is so much greater than any one individual. 
You can't tell someone, pull yourself up by your proverbial bootstraps and not have boots, not have shoes, right? We have these conversations around financial literacy and racial wealth gap and whether financial literacy can close that. Well, sure, financial literacy can, can contribute to closing the racial wealth gap. But the reason why a racial wealth gap exists, because one, the largest creator of wealth, we talked about 80% of options expire worthless, right? So some more statistics for you. The largest creator of wealth in this country is inheritance, whether it be using a real estate asset to leverage it into a business loan or anything else. But that's, that's the number one driver thing, compound interest being another very large contributor. And then the last thing is there's a, there's a lot of legal red tape and institutional red tape and legislature that is in the history of this country that has made it difficult for people from various backgrounds to kind of achieve. So I kind of want to like dole it out with both hands. On one hand, you can only control what you can control. And it is your responsibility to put yourself in the best position to be able to take advantage of whatever opportunities come your way. With that said, there has been a long history of a targeted, explicit approach to create the problem that we have. It's going to take that same targeted, explicit approach to untangle the problem that we have. I, I hope, hopefully, that kind of answers your your question. It does, and and here's a a quick little follow up. Again, since you've been a professional, you saw the global financial crisis, and then we had this sort of black swan event, if you will, the last year or so with the pandemic. And you talk about some of these kind of embedded structures that further income inequality. Well, and I know Guy, I'm gonna I'm gonna trigger him right here, but really, you know, there's been three in the last 20 or so years where the Federal Reserve comes in and they bail out asset holders. They bail out the very groups of people that you're talking about that pass on inheritance and you know all that sort of thing. So how has that shaped your view of our, I guess, our monetary policy in this country? Because it seems like every time we have a massive crisis, we kind of socialize the losses and it further amplifies the income inequality that we're seeing, despite the fact that it used to be billions of dollars are thrown around, but now it's trillions of dollars thrown around. And do you think that we're ever going to be able to kind of break that pattern? Because Jerome Powell has been asked this question, the Fed chair, uh, numerous times over the last year or so about this issue, about easy monetary policy, really accentuating the gap of income inequality. Yeah, I tend to agree. I would add that if you look at asset price appreciation, and wage growth, that gap continues to widen as well. And what we're seeing, you mentioned monetary and fiscal policy, what you're seeing contributes to that. And, and I, I, I'm going to step back from saying, I'm not sure if that's the intention. I, act, I can logically follow step by step why this is necessary in this particular instance, more so than the previous financial crisis, which was 1,000% created by collateralized debt obligations and CLA and all these jargon terms, but essentially leverage upon leverage wrapped in quote unquote insurance and made it not look like leverage. Like that, that's really what went down there. And, and I'll say it, I've said it on the show, I've written about it. I'm not shy. I think some of the biggest villains of the 21st century are going to prove to be uh, central bankers globally and our Federal Reserve specifically. And I've said this on the show and have written about it. Every time they open their mouths, 
the poor get poorer and the rich get richer, whether by design or because they just don't understand what they're doing. I don't even know if the difference matters because both of them are really an indictment upon them if you think about it. And we just continue to go down this road. And Dan said it, I say it all the time. We socialize losses and we privatize gains. I mean, there's a problem there. That is not capitalism. And it's really problematic. And until somebody figures it out, it's not going to get any better. Anyway, that's my little soapbox thing. So you see this and, and you see where your career is now. Where do you see yourself? Like, what's the vision for Bono and Ice in, you know, three to five years from now? Career Can arc. I address that last point? Absolutely. And this is why I say macro. And I don't just mean macroeconomics. I mean, what was drilled into my head and what I would really like to share with everybody else is having a holistic view. That leads to the best decision making. Right? You, you can only make the best decision with the information that you have, but the more holistic that view is, I think that allows you to make the best decision. So this ties into your next question. right? The reason why I'm so adamant about having uh, financial acumen, by, about understanding how investments work, is that the greatest driver of returns is investment. However, the most common, the most common provider of means are wages. And I think that ultimately has to get resolved. If most people's wealth or means comes from wages, but the most robust way of earning said wealth is via investment, you've got to reconcile those two things. Sorry, just to kind of bring a closing loop to what you said, Guy. Where do I see myself? Frankly, Guy, and I think we're kind of kindred spirits here, I feel a responsibility to share the information. That's where I see myself. I love information. I, I hate not being in the know. I like investing. I like kind of the camaraderie that that brings about. Completely separate issue, but I stopped watching the NFL years ago. You can guess as to why. My Sundays have been spent like looking at private deals and not eating chicken wings and guzzling beer, right? I've just found a way to kind of like weave aspects of life that I want in just a more commonplace way. And I, I ultimately, I want to make this information, this education, these resources more readily available in a way that people don't feel so intimidated. I think if I can do that, I've kind of done my job. I, and circling back to how you started this, when I first got on Wall Street, it was this like crazy Wizard of Oz thing that I couldn't even comprehend. And the truth of the matter is that this isn't rocket science. There are brilliant people, but there are brilliant people in medicine and science and every other walk of life. And people have kind of hidden behind and shrouded themselves in this curtain that like we're all these rocket scientists. This stuff is attainable. And a lot of it is about like discipline, knowledge, and not being afraid to ask for help, not being afraid to humble yourself and say, I was wrong. Let me cut that loss. You know what? I didn't understand that. I missed that. I need to get out. And I think that lesson in access and humility, I think the public markets, and we can get into the private side, but at least the public markets, I hope with every iota in me, the public markets at, at least kind of democratize that a bit. Let's talk about democratization because obviously that's been a huge theme in the markets over the last, easily the last couple months. But, you know, there's been a whole host of new market entrants over the last year, predominantly retail. And when you think about, you know, you just mentioned kind of the, really the barriers to entry that have existed on Wall Street, you know, as a professional for years, and you talked about your own experience, right? But then really the masses out there, their access to information, their access to ideas 
is there access to good tools, that sort of thing. And it seems that what happened last month, you know, there was a lot of narratives around it. It was kind of Occupy Wall Street 2 sort of thing, you know. And so I guess my question for you is now you have a platform, Bonwin. You are talking directly to the people, right? You have on CNBC, you have Twitter. You did this amazing thing last month. Guy, did you did you catch this on the TikTok? I don't even know if you know what the Wait TikTok a is. I, of course I caught it because I talked about it on the show. I did. Bonwin, oh, okay. didn't I right. tweet that out or say something about Fair it? Fair enough. All right, fine. You know, guy. You, 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 thanks for, for the check there. But my point was is that you did this really cool thing on TikTok, this stock or that stock. Has the game changed? You know what I mean? Has, is it changed for good now, the way that you know everyday people are going to access information, how they make financial decisions, how they access the markets, that sort of thing? To an extent, I think information now is commoditized. Information isn't really where the value is. It's the filtration of that information. There's so much of it. Right? You can get it anywhere. So I think Having that information filtered down in a way that's relevant, I think that's where the value add is. In terms of do I think things have changed permanently, I I tend to think that things are cyclical. So, yeah, to an extent, yes, but I don't think people should expect this particular market phenomenon to continue. This is not normal. I think people need to get that. I, I really hope people grasp that concept, right? This is one of those generational opportunities. But this is not the, the baseline from which all investment theses should be derived from. And that is, that's what scares me about, about what's going on. Well, it's funny, you know, and Guy and I have talked about this with our partner, Danny Moses, on this on this podcast on our normal Friday drop um, a few times in the last month or so about, you know, last year was such a unique year where, you know, sports were canceled and there was this whole legion of young people who really enjoyed this new sports betting or daily fantasy or whatever, and they couldn't work and they had money put in their accounts. And then there's apps like Coinbase and Robinhood, and it looks very similar to their daily fantasy app. Right. And so all of a sudden they're like, you know what? The government just gave me a bunch of money. I'm going to go trade Bitcoin or I'm going to go buy Zoom stock or whatever the heck it is. And they had a lot of fun making a lot of money. And I just want to kind of get your impression because I've been in this business for 25 years, guy for what, 45 years or something like that. It's not always fun. You know, it's fun when you're making money and you just can't even explain it. But most of the time it's a grind. And the periods of time when you're losing money is the last thing from fun. So what do we take away? from all these financial influencers. Guy calls them, what do you call them, Guy? Finfluencers? No, um, I don't, Dan. I've never said that in my life. You call it and you're trying to make me sound cool. I'm but not we cool. Got, I know, know what I no, am. I know, but the point is we got Portnoy and we got Elon Musk, Game Stonks and all this sort of stuff. And everyone's having a lot of fun with it, but it, it goes the other way too, I guess. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a trend. I do think that there are some things, particularly on the technological front, that are here to stay. And I think you and I have both kind of gotten up there and, and said our piece there. As the, in terms of like the, the education, I'm going to use quotation marks around financial literacy and trading, I think that's a problem. I do think there are some good, well-intentioned people that have the skill set and are willing to share or be compensated for passing along their knowledge. I, I want to be very clear about that, right? Like, I, I think there is value there. I also do think there's quite a few charlatans that are kind of peddling the next hot thing. And right now it's stock tips. And before that it was real estate. And before that it was multifamily. And, you know, it's kind of getting to, everyone can't be an expert. If everyone's teaching, who's learning? 
And what I'm seeing is a lot of people that are teaching, but not very many people that are astute students of uh, the game. So I, that is the, my biggest takeaway of what I'm seeing right now. It's a media craze that I, that I think people are kind of twisting and turning the narrative. Yeah, but you know what, I think what you do so well and what we try to do well is stay true to who you are and stay true to who we are. And we're not looking for the next new shiny thing. I don't think we're trying to sell anybody anything. We are trying to educate. And when you do that in mind, you know, at least from my vantage point, when you understand who your audience is and what you're trying to accomplish, I think people admire the honesty and understand that in this business, you're going to be wrong sometimes more than you're right. And that's okay to your earlier point about humility. So listen, Bonwin, I will reiterate, you know, when Guy brought you in here, um, it's been a ton of fun having you in the fast money mix. Sometimes, you know, some new perspectives and some new point of views. I've really enjoyed. I know that you have serious options chops and I know that you kind of often like to kind of put that in the background and really talk to the people about your experience in the markets and talk in a way that's very accessible. So I give you a ton of credit there. I knew you're going to be a home run when you came in on this. So um, it's been fun and I can't wait until we get back in the studio in the NASDAQ. Yeah. And just let me end it by saying this, you know, there's certain people in life, they can go by one name, like Cher, that Bono guy that plays in the band U2, right? Dan Slash, The Edge, all these people. You know what? I want everybody to follow Bono and Eisen on Twitter for the sole reason that his handle is at Bonoan. I love that, man. That is badass. Can you imagine if I tried to be at Guy? I mean, it would just fall flat. But Bonoan, thank you so much. Folks, you should follow Bonoan at Bonoan on Twitter. It's been an absolute joy having you with us and on the tape. Thanks, Bonoan. I appreciate it. And I don't, I don't want to drag this thing on too long, but if I can give a parting shot, I think um, what's super important is that we – create these forums where we can have these open discussions. I would encourage people to present their views on things, but understand that someone else may not under, may not agree with you or have the experience to really be able to, to digest what you're giving. Focus on being able to communicate that in a way that leads to collaboration rather than getting frustrated or angry. And I'm not saying that that frustration isn't warranted. But if the ultimate goal is to get to what you want, that you need to be collaborative and be willing to to distill down your points in ways that people can understand them and work towards a common goal. And and ultimately, I think um, this is representative of of just that. So I think both. Amen. Thanks, Bonwin. That was a wonderful conversation with Bono and Ice, and I enjoyed it. I know Dan Nathan enjoyed it, and I know when Danny Moses listens to it, he'll enjoy it. And by the way, Dan Moses will be back for our regular Friday segment, but I got to tell you, folks, this one's going to, what do the kids say, off the chain? Because we got Josh Brown, the reform broker, will be with us Friday for On the Tape. He'll be going off the tape with us, but it's going to be, as the kids say, off the hook. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe in podcast stores to On The Tape. Follow us on Twitter, at On The Tape Pod. We'll see you on Friday. 